Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host and I have an awesome guy on today. And by the way, this is my very first time being live on LinkedIn. So I'm pretty excited about being live on LinkedIn this morning, especially with this guest. You guys are gonna love him. His name is Adam Markle and we will be right back. Adam, good morning. Good morning. Great to be here with you. Uh, hey, it's and did I say your last name right? I, I hope I did. You know what? I, I got a funny story, which we probably wouldn't want to take time with. But uh, when I was yeah. a lawyer, it's been 18 years in the practice of law, and I had a an appeal, an appellate <laughs> case in my first year. And it was a really big deal to argue in front of the Court of Appeals. And uh, the chief judge was welcoming me and mispronounced my name, and I corrected him. I said, it's not Markle, it's Markel. <laughs> Markel, I had a feeling. Oh, and my case, my case went down the drain and my dad was there. And he and afterward, he said, you know, he did a really great job first time and you know, all this and that. He says, but maybe next time, don't correct the chief judge right out of the gate. Hey, just a thought. Well, hopefully this goes up from here. Oh, only up from here, man. <laughs> yeah. So we have some people joining us on the live stream. And by the way, this is the very first time I've ever been live on LinkedIn. They just approved me a couple of days ago, and I thought, you know what? Why not? <laughs> Way cool. We, I, it's a great platform and yeah. for business people, and yeah. just in so many ways, I think that platform has gotten better over time. I don't know that yeah. every platform has, but I, I appreciate what LinkedIn has done. Yeah, I agree with you. So, so Adam, I, I created this show about um two and a half years ago and i've interviewed i'm getting close to 300 300 people now it's crazy um and and you know the the overarching theme of the show is helping people have a breakthrough in life we i think we all go through stuff where some people get stuck and stay stuck and others, we just bust through it. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of what this is about. So why don't you start out by just telling everybody where you were born and raised? Oh, my goodness. Oh, born and raised in New York. Yeah? <laughs> in Queens, New York. Yeah. Wow. A little place called Bayside, which is right by the Throgs Neck Bridge, the bridge that, that connects the Bronx and, and Queens. Wow. So, uh, yeah, Little Neck Bay. I mean, it's... Uh, and and right right in this little area called Whitestone, it's a really beautiful spot, actually. Um, yeah. When I was born, technically speaking, uh, uh, my parents were living in in Riverdale, which is again sort of part of the Bronx. And then there was a point where they moved to Kips, Kips Bay, which is like Manhattan. Uh, yeah. That's more information than anybody should ever know about me when it comes to where I where I was raised, but. But New York is a thing, man. I mean, you yeah. grow up in a city like that. You you have different experiences than if you grow up in in other parts of the country or the world. And um, and some of those experiences are really great. And some are really challenging, really tough. It's a, it was a tough place in the '70s to grow up in New York. It was not uh, the sort of Disneyland ish 
uh, environment that Manhattan is today. It's very clean and, you know, and safe. And, and I mean, compared to the way it was when I was a kid, it's as safe as you could imagine. I mean, because yeah. you literally get mugged. You could walk, you know, you'd be on 42nd Street and there was just uh, it was it was a tough environment. And uh, and it's a lot cleaner. And it's a lot safer now, for sure. You know, I had the guest I had on yesterday was actually from the Bronx, like born and raised in the Bronx. And and um, I told I, I've only been to New York one time in my life, like once. I And I drove because I had other stops. So I'm in Ohio. So I did eight hours, you know, so I drove over and um, and that I went through this this I guess it's called hell, also known as a tunnel. <laughs> I was like, and there's this like curve of traffic and you go, what is this? I'm like, what in God's name? Where did all these cars you come from? The small intestine or something. It's just, <laughs> it so was. Kevin, I got to ask you, man, how is it that you've only been to New York once, but yet you're such a, 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 a huge Yankee fan. How is that possible? Yankee fan. <laughs> I mean, that's what I heard. I heard I'm only on the show because you're a Yankee fan, dude. Huge. So Huge, go Jeter! Huge, no man. I'm, I, you know what? I, I, when I was a kid, I played a lot of baseball. I, I loved for some reason being in Central Ohio. This makes sense. I fell in love with the Braves. <laughs> I don't know why. Like I have no idea why. And that makes and, as much sense as you being a Yankee fan, actually, <laughs> right? Or a Cleveland fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm not a Cleveland fan. So, so you know, I, I um, I just not, I haven't followed baseball. It's weird, man. As an adult, I just stopped watching it. I don't know why. Well, I, it, yeah, I think yeah. it's it's if you if you need a good nap in the afternoon, that's the thing to do. It's kind of one of those things, right? That's what my father-in-law would always do. He needed <laughs> he turned on a Mets game <laughs> yeah. by the third inning. He's he's just passed. Out completely. I, I think it has it's subliminal. My my I remember my my stepfather was a huge Yankees fan. He was from um, Massachusetts, and 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 he one time during the World Series, I think it was when the Reds actually beat the Yankees. He um, it was in 76, 76 whatever. They swept and, four games. The Yankees didn't yeah. get off the off the Reds. Then. Oh, you remember. Are you kidding me? I'm still <laughs> scarred from that experience. I mean, that well, was you guys had Johnny Bench. You had Johnny Pete Bench, Rose. Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan. Was, I mean, it was the it was the the red machine. What was it? The red, the big big red machine. Big red machine. Yeah. You guys were beasts. I mean, it was. Mar what was the woman that Marge something? Sebastian, right? Didn't you have like that dude? <laughs> yeah. Too? Yeah. It was crazy, man. But yeah, the so the but he threw a beer bottle at the TV or something. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I want to be a Yankees fan. That seems nonviolent. So. Oh, the opposite. <laughs> the only thing worse than the Yankees fan, honestly, I mean, as, as as obnoxious as Yankees fans are, we're only second by a mile to a Red Sox fan. I'm just saying. And, you know, I, I have a place in Massachusetts. My dad lives in Western Mass. My my wife and I went to UMass Amherst. That's where we met. But yeah. man, if you're a Red Sox fan, you're you're like you're like Neanderthal. That's <laughs> just the way it is. Sorry, I know. And I, you know, with the, and we won't even get into the football talk because that's just 
man, that's on a that's on a whole and and I'm I'm sorry, but but Boston's gonna be in pain this year. <laughs> they're they're not they're not gonna like being without Brady. I can tell you that right now. And I'm a Steelers fan, so you know don't hate me for that. No, again, same thing. Grew up being sort of torn between the two camps growing up in Queens. It was Giants and Jets. Yeah. And the good news was I had seven hours of football that I could watch every Sunday. MB is yeah. equally upset, you know, <laughs> at, at, you know, the, the, all the stuff that goes on in a football game, you know, with those yeah. two teams back then. Um, right. But that was when, when uh, – the Steelers were again had the epic team of epic teams. I mean, when Terry Bradshaw yeah. was your quarterback, yeah, I mean it was him and and uh, and Lynn Swan, right? Roger Starback from yeah. uh, team I, I've I've grown to really love. But <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not talk about Cowboys stuff. So anyway, uh, it's a sports uh, show. What what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? That's crazy. So so I um. So you grew up in in the city, like in New York, um, and then you went to. You said you went to college where? My wife and I met at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. So Amherst okay. is sort of central Massachusetts, and uh, famous in sports wise for one thing, which was that Dr. J. Julius Irving went there for two years, broke every scoring record in the early seventies, and then left. And of course, he became a doctor. We know he's a doctor, so. Um, oh. Uh, but yeah, it was a wonderful place. That it's that's where Smith College and Mount Holyoke and and um, Hampshire College and Amherst College are. It's a five college community. Um, and honestly, my my wife looked at me the other day and she said, "How is it that we ever left Amherst? Even I mean, we've had this glorious life and a beautiful ride, and um, and yet it's just one of those things. Where you go, man, we could have stayed there. It's it's like talk about a little protected ecosystem. That's yeah. And I think that's why we did leave was just because it didn't feel like the real world. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a world, it's a real world. It's just not like the rest of the real world. So. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, how, so how close are you to MIT and Harvard and all of that? Is that in the same general area or no? You know, I mean, close is a relative term. We used to yeah. go there on the weekends. I played water polo and I was a swimmer in college and we'd go there. So we'd play water polo at MIT one weekend and then we'd be at Harvard the next and we'd go to Brown another weekend. And, you know, so it was like a two hour drive from central mass to the city of Boston. Yeah. That's like the college capital of the world. It sounds like it, it honestly is. I mean, it's crazy. you got kids, we have four kids and all of our kids are now out of the nest and, and all, all of them are now, uh, well, two graduated already and two are still in, in the UC system, the University of California system. But yeah, maybe you can send a kid to college. Just look at Massachusetts. You get so many choices there. All yeah. good. And there's great colleges yeah. everywhere for sure. Yeah. yeah. Especially Although, right here in central Ohio. The cost of it is just insane. I mean, I, I was on a consulting call earlier today with, with a guy. We were just talking about what, what it cost when he went to school, when it cost when I went to school and what our kids and our kids' kids are are facing now, the mountain of debt that's associated with a good education, with a four-year education, um, is um, it's, obscene. It's, uh, obscene. it's obscene. I know I have a <clears throat> I have a buddy that him and his wife are both dentists. <clears throat> and um, you know, that's 300 plus just to go to a regular old dental school. And, and his, his wife hates being a dentist. I'm like, wow. 
300 grand to find out you don't like it. That sucks. We, we study the, the, from our, in our work these days, we, we do a lot of research on resilience and yeah. uh, having been a lawyer, I was a lawyer for 18 years you know, retired from the practice of law and reinvented my career path. I wrote a book called Pivot, which is all about that reinvention from the work that I did as a lawyer and and really the, the just sort of the misery of doing work that I didn't love, work that I didn't have my heart in. I made yeah. tons of money doing it and I was you know, successful by a lot of people's definition. But for me, I felt I wake up in the morning, I put my feet on the floor and I would yeah. feel anxious. And I'd feel dread and ultimately even ended up in the hospital thinking I was having a heart attack. And it turned out it was, it was an anxiety attack. So wow. I go from, I, I go from, you know, that to something very different, which we'll maybe talk about today, yeah. but, um, but in the study and in, in the research on, on what it, what it means to be resilient in this world, in the, in the world that is so uh, just gripped in change pandemic, prolific change and and how it is that people keep going and they don't just keep going, but they're able to thrive. Like you said, not everybody can thrive in this kind of environment. Right. What, what are the distinctions between the people and the teams that thrive versus the ones that don't? And that's a great bridge between, you know, talking about Yankees or about Cincinnati Reds or any, any of the teams. I mean, it's always going to be a distinction between the teams that win and win it all and win it all, not once, but you know, periodically over time, et cetera. Um, and the ones that don't. And, uh, and in, in, in our research, I just got to tell you, lawyers are high on the list when it comes to anxiety, depression, even suicide, but higher on the list are doctors and dentists. In fact, I know any dentists. you know, my, one of my best friends in the world is my lawyer and, and he's, he, this guy's a trip, man. He doesn't take, I mean, he does. I, I think you could punch him in the mouth and he would just look at you calmly and go, why, why, why'd you do that? Like he, he's just a, the dude's a trip. And so, but I, you know, I know a lot of, of other attorneys as well. And, and it, it amazes me how so many people like you, you spend eight to 10 years doing that stuff, getting the education and a lot of money. And a lot of these guys and gals don't, they get into practice or working for a law firm and they don't like it. Well, for one thing, you don't know what it is. <laughs> it's, it seems like it's one thing when you're watching Ally McBeal or, you know, or whatever the current, you know, lawyer shows are right. Law and order. I think. Right. Right. But that's not what it's like. And yeah. most people have no idea what it's like until you get into it. So, yeah. And, and I think that's the same in any profession. It's not necessarily just the law, but, uh, but ultimately, um, lawyers are warriors in many ways. And not everybody wants to wake up every day and be in a fight or know that that's what their job is every day to fight for something or someone or uh, it, it just, um, you know, it's a that can be a tough road over, over the long haul. I did it for 18 years, so I don't feel like I, um, I don't, I didn't get enough of it. I got, pl I got plenty of it. Did I got my specialty. Uh, well, <laughs> Did you specialize in anything like business or? It was mostly business law. I did corporate work and litigation, transactional work as well. Um, I had a pretty wide experience. I did a lot of federal court work and uh, it um, it was wonderful. I mean, it, it, it look back on it now 
And it taught me so much about business. It taught me so much about people. It taught me so much about myself. But at a certain point, it was um, it was killing me. I don't know how else to put it. It really was. I was I was not able to handle it. And if I knew then what I know now, I probably could have stayed in the practice. But it's perfect that I didn't because the road since then has just opened up in ways that I never could have expected. And it it was a midlife calling that I was looking for. Yeah midlife crisis. And so my wife and I, fortunately, we were able to create that midlife calling instead of my having to say, Hey, I got to quit my job. I got to move to Fiji. I got to, you know, <laughs> right. buy a Ferrari, whatever it is. It makes you think yeah. you're, you're, uh, you're back on track. So I, I feel like a Ferrari would, would, would be good. <laughs> I don't, I don't knock a Ferrari. I like a nice car. <laughs> so, so, so you practiced law and did you, did you have your own practice or were you working for a bigger firm or how did that go down? I you know what I, I was on my own from the beginning. It, it's kind of an interesting thing. Cause again, wow. in connection with the conversation around resilience, yeah, I, I look at, at how it is that, that people either have great capacity to perform, you know, we, we're inside companies and we're, we're either delivering workshops or doing more uh, longer term gigs with them. Yeah. We often are measuring capacity. We're measuring productivity and that kind of thing. And I look at my own example. I was a kid in, in high school that got crummy grades, but I managed to get into the university of Massachusetts. And I look back now and part of the reason I got into that school and Syracuse and BU and Penn state, all these great schools. And yet I was like a C plus or a B minus student or something, but I wrote well. And writing is so important. And so my essays, I think, were high quality enough that I got into those schools. But I was a crummy student. And then I get into school. And again, I don't have great study habits. And I hadn't read a book. I don't think I had read a book when I got to college. But I became an English major. Go figure wow. You know, and I graduate magna cum laude from, from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. But I, again, I go, you know, how does how does that happened. I get out of uh, out of school. I go to law school. I started teaching. I was teaching for a couple of years, middle school English, and I go back to school to become a lawyer. And now my wife and I are married. We start having babies. We had two kids while I was in law school. My grades were again middle of the road stuff. So I wasn't wow. getting offered any jobs from firms or anything like that. And and I had no prospects that way when I got out of law school. But yet I passed the bar exam in New York and New Jersey on the first try. And and I I. I started tracking these things. How is a guy who sort of looks like he's tracking to the middle, tracking even to the mediocre, <laughs> right? Right. How does this person end up that these things happen? I get out and I'm on my own with nothing, right. but yet I have a, a multi-million dollar law practice several years later and clients and everything by way of referral, no advertising, all that kind of thing. You go, how does that happen? And, and to me, it's, it really is the essence of, of resilience. I was so tenacious in my in my desire to figure it out, to do well and to do well at it, to um, to just be able to um, look at myself in the mirror and say, "Hey, you know, you're really good at this thing." I, that was meaningful to me, and so that that capacity to just continue to you know get up early, stay up late, do do whatever it took. Um, but the thing that I missed in that equation, so I'm able to achieve these results, even despite the mediocre sort of DNA, what looks like, ah, this person's not going to, it's not a white shoe lawyer. It's not a guy who's going to be able to compete with the big firms. I was routinely kicking the, I don't know what you could say on this show, but whatever uh, I was, hand, I was handing, you know, 
handing their, you know, the, these mm-hmm. their lunch. Um, because, and I had no problem working on a Saturday. I mean, it's Saturday at eight, nine o'clock in the morning. I'm spitting out papers. I one one time it's kind of a weird compliment, but I get a phone call in my office on a Saturday. It's from this very big law firm that's representing, you know, some very big corporate clients. And the guy calls me up. He's my adversary. And he says, I knew you'd pick up. He goes, <laughs> I just needed to see whether you were really there today. Right. And he became the best of friends. He ended up leaving his firm and going to work for the MBA and started referring me clients and things like that, which was such a, you know, such a wonderful thing. But the thing I was missing was that in order to do that for a career, for a lifetime, to continue to do it well and to love what you're doing, you, you, you cannot burn out. Burnout is a, is a pandemic of its own in the corporate world. And, yeah. and corporations burn out their talent so quickly because they think that resilience is about endurance. It is not about endurance. It's about recovery. Resilience in sports is about recovery, not endurance. You wouldn't have a marathon runner run a marathon the day before the Olympics and then have them run the, the, the same race the day after. You, you, you just wouldn't even think about that. And yet law firms and, and many, many other businesses, corporations of all kinds, run their employees on empty all the time. Yeah. Empty. Now, car can't run an empty your cell phone can't run without the juice without right. charge why why would you think we could doesn't make any sense so what so you had i mean it sounds like you've had some very not to steal from your book title but some very pivotal moments in in your career i mean because i, I didn't go to college i'm i'm one of those dummies that that went to work instead and, 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 you know, I mean, I had, I went to my own college, trust me. And, and, you know, but along the way, I mean, I was around 20 or 21 years old. I was like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. I, I need to learn. And the only way to do that is I've got to read books. I have to read, I have to, I have to get information. And, and, um, so, you know, I didn't have the formal education. I just, I never had that. My wife is a college graduate and she went to a private college and, and it was not cheap. I know that. But so where along the way, where did you have that moment where you realized that, that man, I, I, I need to, there's something else going on here. Like something else that I, could be doing that kind of moment or well, the moment where you realize that, that, you know, that, that what you just said, resilience is about recovery. Like, how did you know that? Like, where did that come from, dude? Nobody says that. It's a school of hard knocks. I mean, it's the knocks that you're talking about, right? It's the real yeah. school, the school of experience that teaches you these things. And look, I'm a daddy. I'm a husband. I'm married 31 years to my college sweetheart. We have four kids. Um, life is, life is not easy. Life's the, I mean, you talk about a game, you better yeah. be prepared to play that game. Yeah. Like your life depends on it. And it right. does. So you're going to have the really challenging days and you're going to play in the rain and you're going to play in the snow and every other thing you can think of. And, and God willing, your family's going to be healthy along the way. And I know so many people who've had major health challenges and, yeah. and my wife had cancer at one point and, and, and I was having uh, I lost my, I lost my hair. <laughs> doesn't seem like much, except my body was telling me that you're under this great stress. 
and your your life is kind of going in a direction you didn't anticipate. And I had these moments where I'm looking in the mirror 10 years into my career and thinking, not only is this all it, but will this kill me? I came home one night. I remember wow. that. I, I walk in the door because I was I was a workaholic, like a lot of people are. Only workaholism back when I was a workaholic was 70 or 80 hours a week. You know, today, you know, Elon Musk says you're a slacker if you're not working 100 or 110 hours or, <laughs> yeah. or whatever. And it's like, you know, I think they're trying to kill people. You know, let's let's <laughs> let's thin the herd by having everybody stress themselves out to the point where they, you know, they, they can't even uh, say their own name. So for me. In my workaholism, I, I would routinely get home after dinner. I mean, I would say to my wife almost every day at four o'clock or thereabouts, I'd say, baby, I'm going to be home for dinner tonight. And I'm going to get on the 6.30 or the six o'clock train or the bus or if I drove into the city or whatever. And I, I walk in the door at like eight o'clock, 8.30. I wouldn't get on that bus or that train until seven. Or yeah. 30. Even though my intention was to be home, uh, my intention wasn't to be a liar, but I was lying to myself and I was lying to my wife every time I said it. And and I'd walk in the door and and this one particular night, I, I'll never forget it because it was like this cold, rainy night. I walk in, I'm dripping and I look at her and she looks at me and I knew instantly I didn't just miss dinner. I missed putting the bed. I missed being able to cuddle up in the bed and, and read my kid a you know, kids a bedtime story or kiss them while they were awake. And I walked straight up to her and I said, if I keep doing what I'm doing, you're going to be a widow. And that wow. was the moment, man. I mean, she took a <laughs> breath. I took a breath <laughs> and then she looked at me and this is, this is, you know, a part of the, the biggest, as far as I'm concerned, the biggest part of my success personally is that I have somebody in my life and I've had someone in my life since I'm, 19 years old, who has had my back. Like it says on my shirt, got your back. That's a cultural yeah. statement. You know, she's had my back since then. So she looked at me and she said, we'll figure it out. She didn't say to me, hey, dummy, we got, we got a house here, big house, cars, kids, gerbils, goldfish. <laughs> You're responsible for a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of lives, right? Right. Didn't remind me she knew I knew that she knew I I, I felt the weight of that so she yeah. just said we'll figure it out and and so I didn't need to have that I got to go to Fiji moment even though Fiji's wonderful today right now everybody can work from Fiji can work from yeah. anywhere learn from anywhere Fiji's a great place to connect to your internet your to your interweb <laughs> and and yeah. but but back then man those 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 options did not exist and and for me I just had to be honest where where I was at and where I was at was I was miserable when I had everything in the world to be grateful for. Beautiful wife, kids, all this, all these blessings, and I was a misery. Was this at year 18 or was this earlier on in your practice? Now, this was this was probably at year 14 or 15. Because wow. you know, okay. the story, the story that I tell in the book Pivot. And, and it's partly my story. And then it's all this other research and, and other people that we've met along the way. Cause ultimately I, I ended up uh, it reinventing my career path and then was, was asked to speak on that topic. And then ultimately I became somebody that people were calling to speak all over the world on that topic of reinvention and based on the principles in this book. So um, the, the good news is that I was able to get out 
I can't tell you how many lawyers that write to me or, or email, you know, and say, how do I do it? And that kind of thing, or other people in other professions, but, but it took two and a half years. Yeah. So we started to map out the plan B and then I didn't jump ship. I'm not a believer that you jump ship. That's not, right. it's not the way I made up. I mean, that's outside the bell curve as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> right. You want to make a change? You, you go, you go the Dave Brailsford route. I don't know if you know Dave Brailsford is, but he's the, was the performance director for the British cycling team in the, right. in, in early two thousands. And that was a team that was a British cycling team that had not won ever won a tour de France ever. That's how good they were. They were also so good that they had not won a medal in the Olympics since like 1910 or something. Wow. And this guy comes in and, and this is, this is a story that, that companies love when I, I share this with their people, because he comes in and he doesn't say we've got to make a drastic change to the way we do. Look, he could have said, Hey, the, the record speaks for itself, right? We suck. Like the team sucks. You got, <laughs> right. we got to throw everything out and start fresh. But instead he says, no, what we've got to do is we've got to make 1% improvements to things. We've got to put progress ahead of perfection. And so he starts to make these tiny, tiny little incremental changes to everything, including, get this, the truck that they would carry the bikes in. He painted the inside. He had them paint the inside of the truck white. Now, of everything that you could think to change for a team that has never won and turn them into a team that's a winner, why would you paint the inside of the truck white? And it's because they, they found out that there was all this dust that would accumulate inside the truck. And when it was dark inside the truck, they couldn't see the dust. And the dust would get caught up in the gears and the bikes wouldn't perform as well. And so he had a thousand of these things that he would make this tiny, tiny little incremental improvement to. And that's the pivot principle at, at its best is you make small changes and small changes over time. It's like a straight line. If you imagine a straight line, you make a tiny little change in the direction yeah. of that line. Over time, those two lines separate greatly. And that's what he was teaching. And then ultimately, five years later, they, they win their first medal in the Olympics. Seven or eight years later, they win more medals in the Olympics than any other cycling team. And they've won, I don't know, six or seven Tour de France's since then. And you go, my goodness, that's the method. So for us, two and a half years later, I was able to leave the practice of law, retire, and be doing work that my heart was in, work that I loved, and work that was paying really well on top of it. So you left the law practice after 18 years to do what? To be a speaker and a consultant and... and, and yes. <laughs> a keynote, keynote speaker. We, we, we train people on their public speaking to give TEDx talks and the like. Uh, we created a company that was that went from you know the company was training thousands of people a year. We were doing millions of dollars in revenue. I mean, really, okay, You're but, like, but yeah. not overnight, and and not without yeah. the pain and suffering of entrepreneurship. I mean, look, yeah. this is not you know the the story for people listening is not the rosy ending. It's every day. It's diligent, vigilant practice, deliberate practice, humility. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is, that is, um, you don't hear of a lot of, of attorneys that just say, I'm done, I'm done with this gig. Like you don't hear of that. Well, they say you it all the time. They just don't do anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm just kidding. My colleagues, man. I mean, so I, you I, know, you know, Brett Grossman, it sounds like. What's that? You know, Brett Grossman. Oh, Brett's a good buddy of ours. Actually, Brett, yeah. 
Brett's been part of uh, part of some of our speaker training. Brett is a superstar, man. He's a rock star. He's been on the show. He's a buddy of mine too. Yeah. Oh, that's so. Okay. Yeah, small world. But so so. Um, okay, so you, you leave now. So you had this law practice, did you? I'm assuming you had other attorneys working for you also. I, I did a lot of outsourcing back then. I think I was ahead of my time in that respect. I didn't want to have the uh, the overhead. I mean, in business, there's only one thing, right, Ken? This is school of hard knocks stuff, not, not necessarily Wharton Business School, but there's one thing you can control in business, only one thing, just one thing and one thing only. What's that one thing you can control in business? Uh, how much I don't sleep. Uh, <laughs> I wish you could control the part, man. Oh Lord. It's what you spend. That's the oh, only yeah. you have any control over in business. So I just didn't want to marry myself to the kind of overhead that would mean I would never, I wouldn't have options yeah. or I'd have fewer options. And so, you know, I, I just get lucky in the sense that I didn't want all that overhead. And therefore when I wanted to leave, I didn't have partners to unwind to practice with. I didn't have all the other kind of hassles of it. Um, and yeah, there's other ways to do it. You could do it sm more smartly than I did, but I was 20 something years old. I didn't know anything. My father wasn't a lawyer. I didn't grow up with that in, in, in my life. And, you know, my dad was a, a recreation director and a preschool teacher. And we grew up, we didn't have a lot of money. So there just wasn't a lot of financial literacy, certainly not in regard to you know, forming a business and how you, you do those things. So I got a little lucky um, in, in some of those areas. And, and then uh, there were things I would do differently as well. What made you want to be a lawyer? That's a great question. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't really have an answer for that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I know why I, I know when I decided I met this guy, I was a lifeguard and, and a bunch of my stories when I speak have to do with my days as a ocean lifeguard in Jones Beach back in in uh, whenever it was, but when I was 19 starting. And I met this guy who was retired. He was a retired lawyer. And he was telling me about his just stuff going on in his life and what he did. And I looked at him, I said, this is a nice man. I like him. And and he earned a lot of money. And and all I, I knew at that point was, you know, be a teacher or what am I going to do with my my English degree? So I worked for the city of New York as an English teacher with kids in eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade, little eighth grade animals, you know, the seventh graders were sweet and the eighth graders were hormonal and little animals. Yeah. And I did that. My wife was going to be a teacher. She did that for 17 or 18 years herself. So I just didn't know what I didn't know. And I thought, well, you know what? English writing and speaking, and I've never been really an extrovert. This is a little odd, I guess, that I'm a public speaker, but, uh, but that's what we tell people, you know, we work with CEOs or others that are a little shy or a little bit more thinking, uh, you know, and a little more, more in their head than in their heart kind of thing. I say, look, I'm, this is, this is situational extrovert ism for me. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm happier being with a small group of people or alone. I like to meditate. I don't like to walk. I like to read and stuff like that. But you, you, when, when you have something where you can help people, you rise, you know, you're, you're capable of so much more than you ever think you you are. So, you know, back then I wanted to do something decent with my life. I wanted to have a family. My wife and I, we knew immediately we we're going to have a bunch of kids and I had to figure out how to pay for that. I, I got, I had, a, I had an intuition that life was going to become a little more expensive than for my parents. And man, oh man, 
We've seen the, the obliteration of the middle class. There is so, it's such a divide between the really have and the really dot, don't have. And, and that just didn't exist so much when we were kids. My dad didn't make a lot of money and we still lived a good life. So maybe, maybe it was the same for you growing up, Ken. Yeah, it was. I, I look at it and I think, I, I mean, you know, I follow Gary V. Gary V follows me on Twitter. And, you know, Grant Cardone is a friend of mine and, and Mark and Crystal and all these amazing just superstars. And I say superstars because they're on levels that, most people will never ever get to and and that's just the reality of it but i look at that and i think you know i'm seeing grant flying around the world on a 50 million dollar jet and i'm like i want a jet <laughs> like you know and i just wonder how many people because i really want one i i'm not like it's not just me saying that as a joke i want a jet and i don't even know why it's like you want to become an attorney you don't even know why but like you know, so I, 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 I think that people do well, you know why we, I mean, if you're asking me at that level, the why has to do with your, your self-image. I mean, or I'll say for me, I don't want to you know accuse you of this, but yeah. you know, there's a certain respect that comes from certain occupations, professions. When you drive around in a beautiful car, you fly around in a jet, you know, people look at you like you're special, like you're smart, like you're worth listening to. I, I call BS on a lot of that, frankly. I mean, no offense to any any of your friends or whatever, because I think a lot of people, if you examine their lives, if they were really transparent about what goes on at home and with their kids and things like that, you might not be so envious of it. Right. But And I'm not pointing anybody in, out in particular, but I think there's just a lot of hypocrisy. And especially in that space of, of thought leadership that people that aren't congruent, truly living what it is they preach. So yeah, yeah. have a jet for, if, if you want to have a jet for no apparent reason, but don't have a jet, <laughs> right. don't need a jet because it'll make you good enough that your dad will love you or that your friends right. will love you or other people will say, hey, what a smart guy. I mean, that's, right. that's no way to live. Yeah. I'm 55, I get to say that. See that, this, yeah. I get to say that. At 30, I had no no basis to say that, I don't think, because you just haven't, you haven't endured enough. You haven't had enough humbling experiences to realize how how wrong that path can be for some people. Right. Dude, I totally agree with you. By the way, I I and that's why I said I don't even know why. I I really don't. I don't know why. But you can buy a jet for a million dollars. You know, I mean, so they're they're out there. You can't buy a Gulfstream 550 for a million dollars, but, but, but anyway, so like I, I, I look at, at life and, and, and it sounds like we have very similar views. Um, when you left the law practice, I mean, I'm assuming that you went from a really, really good income to like, oh shit, I'm kind of starting at ground zero. Is that right? Well, I mean, this, the story goes that I, I started to do these workshops um, for a company in the space, a, a big personal development company. Okay. And ultimately, I became a trainer for that company while I was still practicing law and then ended up succeeding to the role of CEO of that company and part of the rebranding and, and it, sort of bringing it into the, into the next um you know, to its next place or what have you. So I, I didn't, I didn't go without 
I'm again, I'm a conservative person sort of by nature. And my belief is that you build, you build a second bridge before you have the first one. Like we have a, we have a home on, on this little Island off Cape Cod and there's a waterway that you have to drive across and there's, it's a drawbridge so that the sailboats, these pretty, pretty sailboats for, you know, people with these big sailboats, right? They come through like, you know, the, the yeah. 60 foot sailboat, right? I want one of those, <laughs> 60 foot sailboat. Yeah. In the world, so the drawbridge goes up and down, and what? And we we driving by, and at some point we see there's a lot of construction happening. So we pull over and ask the question, and it's an Army Corps of Engineers person. They say, "Yeah, we're gonna where this bridge that's here has been here forever, and it, it could go down in the next nor'easter. We've got to build a new bridge." We thought, "Wow, that's a great pivot story right there, man." You know, like the bridge is there; they're building the second bridge right next to it. And when the you know the first bridge, the new bridge is done, they'll tear down the old bridge. So that's my lesson: is pivot wise, you don't tear down the first bridge before you've got your second one in place. But then the story got a little bit better because, like a year and a half later, they're building. You know, we see them constructing again. It's like millions and millions of dollars that get spent on this stuff. And we say, so what's happening now? And they say, well, that bridge we built was the temporary bridge. So they built a temporary bridge to tear down the old one they thought might fall down. And now they were building the more permanent bridge, like the hundred year bridge. And I thought, oh, this is the best pivot story of all, because just because you build another bridge and, and that that's enough to, to satisfy what, what your financial needs are or, or other things that might be important to you at the time. Don't, don't expect that that's the last time you're going to pivot, that that's the last bridge that you're going to build. And that's been true for me. Um, you know, when you start to reinvent things and you you get the philosophy behind it as well as tactically the things that you do and how you start, like the book that I wrote is very much a foundational book. It's not a, a motivation. It's not even inspiration. I made some of that in there, I guess, but it's more like, what do you do tactically to start on the path of making changes? Because I'm not a tear the bridge down guy without the other bridge being there. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You know, I, I, I got to tell you that I, so I, I, you're going to, this will make you cringe. So out of high school, I worked at the Honda factory building cars. Like, you know, it, everybody in central Ohio works at the Honda factory building cars because they pay so well and non-union, but they, yeah, they, they pay. So, and so I'm like, I'm 18 years old, 30 years, 30 plus years ago, making 45, 50 grand a year at 18, 19, 20 years old. Crazy money. But I mean, I lived there 70 hours a week. At lunch one day, and I knew I hated it. I hated it. I mean, with a passion. There's not even windows in this place. Like, it sucks. And and so some little feller, I'll just say little dude says, I said, man, I hurt my back working on the... and." I, and he goes, quit your bitching and get back to work. And if you ever want to get into management and I go, you know what? I don't ever want to be in management and I don't want to be here anymore. You're an asshole. I quit. And he's like, you can't quit. And I go, I'm, watch me. And I clocked out and left. I lit and never went back. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a little bit different than you, man. I'll blow the freaking bridge up and say, say la vie. Well, look at where you were. Were you married at the time? Yes, I was married. You had kids, you had kids at no, the time? No, no, no. no. Uh -uh. 
no. But I so I was I was just in this place where it was like I I, I knew I wanted out. I had already been looking at you know, maybe I should get into sales or something that's, you know, pays a little better, has less stress. Um, and and this is the other thing. And I think you'll agree with this. The grass is not always greener. It oh, looks greener. Always. Right. It looks greener. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember my ex-wife's father was like the VP of sales for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals and they had a butler and they had, and I'm like, I didn't have a butler. Like, I, I don't even know what that's like. Like, what, what's that? I don't right? know. Didn't we all have butlers? <laughs> I know. Right. And I'm like, what, what, how do I get a, a butler? Like how we an Alice. growing up, it was the Brady bunch for us. So it was, yeah. everybody wanted to have an Alice. I know. Right. Right. And that house. I mean, come and on. And that house. Right. house. Yeah. And Mike and Carol were just like, you know, nice, you know? So, so, but like, like, you know, I, I, so I, I, I had this thing in my head that day. I thought, man, I know people making 150 grand a year in commissions and sales that don't have to put up with crap from a dude like you. And so, so I walked out and I got into sales and I literally lived broke for a long time, man. And, and that's when I realized that I was an idiot not for leaving that job, but I needed to read books. I needed to get information. Right. Well, you know what? You, you were going with your emotions then. And, yeah. And I, you know, I'm a, an emotional person. I think that part of what, what we have to learn to do, part of the wisdom of life is that you modulate. Yeah. Just like speaking is about modulation. You can't be, oh, yeah, 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 you know, all the time. It's like you turn people off that way just as much as if you're so boring, they won't listen to you. Right. But, the modulating between your 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 head and your heart, between your thinking and your logic side of you that's important and and your feeling side. And so the 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 harmony between those two is really is key. Look, it's ironic that the book I uh, so we've got a new book that's coming out with McGraw Hill called Change Proof, leveraging the power of uncertainty to build long-term success. That's coming out in the spring, but the book Pivot came out a couple of years ago and that was with Simon and & Schuster. And the first job I had out of college was with Simon and & Schuster and I hated it. It was so awful. I was there for about six months and in the end, I, I, I didn't quite flip off my boss, but I mean, I, I did what you're talking about, man. I just, I said, this is like driving me crazy. This is ridiculous. I can't even imagine myself here in the, having this, conversation two years from now it's like i'm out of here Screw this. You know? so it's like so i've quit i know what it, it is to quit but you know what back then again we said in business in life the only thing we control in the in the financial end of life is is what we spend and yeah. so because i had no almost no expenses and between my my fiance at the time be, you know it was my wife we we could control it i quit so you know what i i took a few more hours bartending yeah. I was willing to waiter. I was willing to have another job. I was a lifeguard in the summer. You know, we had plenty of money for what we had to spend. It was easy to make yeah. that decision and follow, you know, just get out of there. But uh, but yeah. later on, as as many mid-career people know, and you, you've got, there are people who've got alimony to deal with there and child support. And there are people that are just like their kids are going to school. I mean, how do you quit? How do you just quit something? when other people's lives are, are also hanging in the balance. So I, full, I fully get that, that that's a reality. And yet it's not an excuse because 
at the end of your days to look back and go, well, look me, you know, I gritted it out. I, I was able to tough it out for my family, but I, at, at the cost of my soul, at the cost of, of what I might've done with my life, but for not knowing how to do it. And so you're right, reading books, starting the plan, starting yeah. to think about the small changes to whatever those are. That's what you can do now. That's what you can yeah. do for the next 12 and 18 months. This is one of the most creative times we've ever lived in. And, and the ability to, to find information, to be able to earn, literally earn from anywhere, work from anywhere. I did a workshop recently about that. It, it has never existed before now. Yeah. So you know, it, it's, this pandemic in many ways has leveled the playing field. The fact that the future of work is, is, is remote work. That was a book that was written, The Future of Work, I think in 2000 by, um, gosh, Thomas Malone, maybe. I might be screwing, screwing that up. But um, he was calling for, for exactly what we're seeing now. It only took 20 years yeah. for it to become the thing that, that organizations will, will accept now. That you can, as long as you get your job done. You, you are able to complete your project or, or create, you know, get the KPIs, get the results. You can do it from anywhere. You can do it from Fiji. You can do it from Barbados. doesn't matter. Um, th that's an opportunity that didn't exist when you and I were just getting started. Right. My, my attorney has, I think, four or five that work for him. And, and I think, I don't know how many are of counsel, but, but like he has a firm, you know, and, and he sends me a text the other day from Florida at, at a pool swimming pool. And I'm like, dude, what, where are you? And he's like, I'm down at my parents. I'm working my butt off right now. <laughs> and he's in flip flops in the pool in the background with his laptop right there. But that's the way that it is. Like, you know, first the, most of the courts are kind of shut down right now anyway. So like you, you're, you're probably not going to be standing in front of a judge or anything at the moment. So, but anyway, so, you're right. I agree. Right now is, and, and, and quite frankly, me being in technology, which I've done for 26 years now, <clears throat> you know, being in technology, this is, this, this pandemic has caused me to like blow up, like blow up, blow up and teaching people technology and everything else. So uh, let me ask you this question because I can't even believe we've already been on here 50 minutes, man. What do you think, in your opinion, what do you think holds people back from experiencing, I want to say, success when it comes to, to financial and success when it comes to joy and happiness? Oh, wow. What you, would you say? We... <laughs> We have another three hours to talk yeah, about. We can go as long as you want. I don't care. So okay. it's the internet and it's my show. So oh. <laughs> we can go all day. That, right? They're not going to pull the plug on you the way they no. did when, when Frank Sinatra was giving his last acceptance speech. He was right. given a lifetime achievement award, I think the Grammys, and he's in the middle of talking and they go to the commercial and you go, who on earth? I don't care if he was, if he had dementia. And if the next thing out of his mouth wasn't going to make any sense, that was Frank Sinatra that they that they interrupted. And I'm thinking to myself, who's in the booth? Who's got to get fired right now? I mean, it was fired just and dropped off a bridge. Like it's it's Frank. It's Frank. Dude, I was listening to Frank Sinatra this morning. That's crazy that you're you're talking about Sinatra. But anyway, 
what, do you, what is it, man, that keeps people keeps people from from not succeeding, not not achieving some financial success, and 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 because there's a lot of people that get stuck, man. They you you talked about it a minute ago. You know, what if you would have figured out how to endure, um, you know, working at that one company that you were talking about and you figured out how to endure it and maybe eventually you got to 25, 30 bucks an hour and, and that's where you stayed for the rest of your life and never experienced what, what you've been able to experience. Gosh. I don't mind the dead air time, and I'll quickly just say this: the sounds that you're hearing there, we're we're on Penobscot Bay in central on the central coast of Maine, and they're doing they're doing work outside the house on the shingles. I, I can't hear it. So, oh, okay, good. I was worried. Is that why you keep muting yourself? I, that's the reason I am, just because I I'm can't here. I can't hear a single thing. All I hear is you. Oh, that's so good. All right. Well, I don't yeah. know about that, but all right. <laughs> I don't. I can't hear it. E- everything in our lives is the result of our of our of the thinking that preceded those things showing up. I mean, of of everything I, I've I've experienced myself and what I've learned is that we are, we are constantly creating our future by the things that we think and, and, and very much by the things that we say. I've been thinking lately a lot that if, if you were walking around recording, like if this thing, your cell phone or something else was recording everything you said all day long, you, me, anybody, and at the end of the day, you had to sit there and listen to every word that came out of your mouth for that day. You mm. probably would cringe. Yeah. And and in many ways, we are are speaking. We we speak our life into being. And I'll let that sit for just a second. What what what, it, what is it that's happening in your life right now as the result of what you've spoken into being? And that speaking started with thinking. So in the progression, it's the thoughts that are creating much of what you feel and then much of what you feel ends up being what you, what you communicate. And, and that ultimately translates into these results, these things that show up. It's the way you look at anything in nature, much of it starts out in the invisible world. It starts out with the seeds that are under the ground that we don't see that ultimately produce something above the ground. And so our thinking is, is with us all the time. It's insidious. And we've got to manage our thinking. We've got to be monitoring it. We've got to become aware of it. And so much of our thinking is is really irrational. Um, I'm revisiting something. I, I'm a reader like you are. And it's ironic that I didn't read a book in high school. I, I read very, you know, and you go, holy smokes. And now I just devour them because I realize that the keys to life are, are contained in the painful stories that other people are sharing in their books and things. Um, and my dad is a writer to this day. He's a creative writer. He's a fiction writer. And I write nonfiction. I write in a different, totally different genre. Um, and I'm just fascinated with what gets companies results, what gets individuals results and and the like. And, and one of the things lately that I've been looking at is the work of Albert Ellis. This is a, a, a psychoanalyst uh, who became well-known, I think, in the mid-50s for something called rational emotive therapy, R-E-T, which mm-hmm. then also led to something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is something a lot of people are aware of. But, you know, so the bottom line with that is that we are, we have a lot of irrational beliefs and, and, and we, and our voice, the voice inside our heads. 
you're you're you muted yourself. That there you go. There you go. Thank you. So yeah. in many ways, we we've got this irrational voice inside of our heads. And it is a voice. The voice yeah. inside our head is a voice just like the voice that we're speaking with. And, and so we have to be able to discern, not, not easy to do sometimes, but to discern our irrational thoughts, our irrational beliefs, our irrational voice inside our head from the one that's rational. And, and often you can identify whether something's irrational by the way you, you think of it. Meaning if, it, if it's something that brings about fear in you, anxiety in you, if, if you trace back to words like must and should and have to, um, you know, the, the, the way in which that we, we make things uh, a requirement in our lives, like I, I must do this or I have to do that. You know, it's like we use the word need. I, I will, when I'm listening to somebody speak often, I'll track whether they say the word want or need. Need is a word that is all about irrationality. Because if you say, well, I need to pay my mortgage. No, no, no. You don't need to pay your mortgage, right? It's irrational to say you need to pay it because you don't have to. You right. want to pay your mortgage. And the reason you want to pay it is because you want to keep your house. And part <laughs> of why you want to keep your house, even though you might hate the, the burden of your house, is that the thought of selling your house and what it would mean, what people would say, what, it, what other people, how you'd be judged, how you would judge yourself. Oh, I had to sell my house. That means I'm not successful. I, my father had to sell, you know, went bankrupt. His business went bankrupt. And now I'll be just like him. I'm a failure if I have to sell my house or, or selling my house is like the next thing I'll be is homeless. I sell my house doesn't mean I'm going to be homeless. It means if I sell my house, I might downsize. I might take the money from my house and reinvest it or do something more intelligent with it. Uh, I, I might buy something smaller. What? But in our minds, we equate having to hold on to that house to so many other things, and that's irrational. And right. so I don't, I don't want to turn this into a necessarily a psychology conversation, but you asked me, why do people not succeed in life? And mostly it's because of the way they think. And, and ultimately, we have to examine our thinking. We have to go back to the drawing board. You've got to get to the foundational stuff because everything starts there. And I'm a very spiritual person. So even if you don't know what it means to change your thinking, think on that, meditate on that, pray on that, ask for guidance and you'll receive guidance. And I'm not a preacher, but I'm going to tell you in my life that never fails. When you ask for what you're looking for, the universe supplies it. And, and humility is probably, if you ask me, what's the most important thing in a leader and a CEO, it's, it's humility, not arrogance. I'm not interested in the guy who's got the loudest voice and the biggest vision and can, again, stand in front of their car, their garage full of Ferraris and tell me how to succeed. I think that whole thing is bullshit. God, I love that, man. Oh, my God. Okay, you just sold me on buying your book, by the way. <laughs> and, and, and I'm an Amazon influencer, so I'll add, your, I'll add your book to my Amazon store. And maybe we can do a live, you because I can go live on Amazon. You and I can do a live, and we'll talk about your book on Amazon. Sell a couple of books. So I, I say a couple, but it, it, it's fun because you go live to all 150 million of their customers. So it's kind of cool. Um, so so I love that. I study. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Joe Dispenza. Um, I study him. I've, and I'll just, I'm transparent about this. So I have 18 years of sobriety and recovery. I, I'm a recovered alcoholic. And, and 
17 years ago, somebody said, hey, you might want to um, look into meditating. And I'm like, what the hell's that? What are you talking about? Like, Jesus wouldn't like that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no. Jesus don't go in there. Yeah, right, right. So, so I started meditating and dude, I, I, for 17 years, I have meditated every single morning of my life. I'll be late for a meeting before I miss my meditation time. And it's the most important and impactful thing that I ever learned how to do. And I say learn, cause there's not really learning. It's a, it's more of a just doing and being, but like, it's it's so powerful and people don't do it, man. It blows me away. It blows me away. You you meditate. You said it. I do. I mean, I'm a crummy. I was. I gave a TED talk, and I was. Uh, one of the funny things about that talk is people really resonated with this point where I I sort of get down on uh, you know in the meditation position, right? Yeah. And I go, I'm a crummy. I I've been a crummy meditator. I'm not. I'm a shitty meditator. <laughs> I don't even have to do it, like you just said. But I believe in stillness. Yeah. I you yeah. know what stillness means and 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 how you create it is a fun it's a fun thing to figure out how to sense the volume of space between your eyes and and cool things like that. And Joe Dispenza, you know his work uh, was first brought to me by our oldest daughter. She said, "Dad, you got to check this out, man. You got to check out this guy's story. You got to listen to him. And you got to listen to his meditation." And you know, I was like, "Wow, yeah, it's, it's so much good stuff out there." And there really is, man. There really is, and there's so much. I, I love, and I'd love to have you come back on again, man. I, I think because you you hold some truths that that the world needs to know, man. I I I I say I don't mean to preach all the time, but I preach about this stuff. Like freaking get silent, man. All of the answers that you're looking for, that you they're there. They already exist in you. You just have to go looking for them, man. They they will. They will be revealed. You just have to look. You agree with that, I'm I'm sure. I do. You can't ask a question that you don't get an answer to. It's yeah. it's a cause and effect relationship. So people just yeah. don't they don't ask. Like we have three steps that we typically would say, you know, what's the what's a little hack for me in my, you know, where I am now? And and it's three things: pause, ask, and choose. Three things. That's it. You pause where you are, get to stillness, get to neutral. Just take the judgment out. Like something's right, wrong, fair, unfair, good, bad. We're so constantly dividing up the things into those compartments, right? Red, blue. I mean, we do that all the time. So just stop that for a second and pause and then ask questions. You, you want to find meaning, just ask for meaning. <laughs> ask to find, find the answers to things you're, you're, you don't know, you're curious about, and then you can choose. Because now you're resourced to make better choices. And, and what is life but, but just the, the ability to make choices and, and to upgrade the way that you make your choices in life, to make spontaneous, spontaneous right decision-making is, is, man, do I aspire to that? You're just like in an, in an instant, you can just make the right choice. God, that, that is, this, this has been amazing. Wow. Well, first, thank you to Mark Victor Hansen for referring you over to me. Um, 
I, I am so grateful that you took the time to come on here today. This has been amazing. I have um, your book. I'm gonna, I'm going to drop the link in the comments right now for everybody to go over and grab a copy of your book. I'm gonna paste it in the comments. It should go through. Um, everybody can go over to Amazon to this link, and I'm putting it on my my personal page as well. Go over and grab a copy of the book Pivot. And it's the Pivot, the Art and Science of Reinventing Your Career and Life by Adam Markell. And I said <laughs> it right that time. You did, brother. Look at you. You see, you did the Simone Biles, man. You just stuck that landing. Awesome. <laughs> And you know what's cool too is we get to continue this because we have a podcast called the Conscious Pivot Podcast, yeah. and um, and that's a show that you're going to be a guest on in a couple of weeks. And then we'll because those are those aren't live; they're pre-recorded. But we'll turn that around really fast and see if we can't get it out in September as well. So just we do a little one-two punch with this it would be fun. That's awesome. This is this is great, man. And and so this is live. We're I, like I said, this is my very first time being live on LinkedIn. So you're my very first LinkedIn guest. I mean, I've never been live by myself on LinkedIn. So here we are, man. This is great. So Adam, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on and spending the time. Your wisdom is there's so much more, man. I wish we did have all day because I think. I think you you got a lot more, man. A lot more in the tank. You're being very generous, and I, I appreciate it. And uh, I'm looking forward to the chat more. And uh, mm -hmm. and and again, people, come up, go to adammarkell.com forward slash podcast. You can check out where where Ken's going to be. Uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna have. I'm going to turn the mic on you, buddy. I got, I got things I got to ask you. <laughs> hey, I got you're gonna you're gonna see that I am. I am an open book, man. I don't, uh, there's, there's the website, adammarkell.com. Go over and check it out. I'm sure your link to the podcast and everything else is on there. Um, is there, do you have a email list people can get on from your website? And well, we talked a little bit about resilience earlier, and that's something people can opt in if they want to get a resilience assessment score for themselves. And it's not a it's not a sale or anything like that. It's just we have a lot of resources we've collected over the years for how it is that people mentally, emotionally, physically, and even spiritually can develop, build themselves up, be more resilient. And and the thing about a pandemic is that it brings that topic up. I mean, gosh, if I only were getting paid for every time somebody said pivot in the last twelve, you know, weeks or whatever it is, you know, it, it's uh, it's astonishing how that work, word has come into vogue. Um, but resilience is another one. So we we've been doing this a long time. And and to me, the thing about resilience is you got to create it before you need it. You got to develop it before you need it. So now's yeah. the time to be working on it, not necessarily for what's going on in the moment, but What's the next thing? Because we both know, you and I are old enough to remember what the world was like when Y2K was the threat. Then it was 9-11 that devastated all of us. And then it was 2008. And you go, if you think that this, the disruptions that we're looking at, pandemic now, like that there won't be another one a year, two years, five years from now, then you, you're not seeing the long, the long view. We've got to be- well, Maybe even in the next election cycle. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Let's not go there. <laughs> <You said> <laughs> <laughs>
uh, <laughs> like the third rail now, right? This is literally the third rail. Do yeah. not I'm just playing. Man. <laughs> oh Lord. All right. So um, hey, and my buddy Glenn Morshower is um is he I don't know if you know who he is or not, but he's been a he's a pretty famous Hollywood actor 45 years. So he's my best friend in the world. We have a show, him and I do on Sunday nights called the Ken and Glenn show with a guy named Scott. Um, it's a lot of fun. So I met um, I met Glenn some years ago. I was running a company called Peak Potentials, and Glenn's a speaker. Glenn's yes. a very well-regarded speaker. And I, I don't remember how it is that we met, but Glenn and I have met long ago. Have you really? That's awesome, man. Yeah. Glenn's my best friend. He is a good – we were on live last night until 2 in the morning. I said, dude, I got to go. Like, <laughs> I have an interview in the morning. I got to go. <laughs> good to see you, Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> nice so, to see you. Hey, I'm going to go ahead and end the live stream. Adam, thank you so much. Stay with me, if you would, for just another minute. Sure. I'm going to end this, and you and I will chat afterwards. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you. Pleasure. Thank you. We'll see you guys later. Have a great day.